Dr. Liz Dennett, and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. Although we have loads of oil and gas around the world, not enough of it is high enough quality. That's a challenge for the industry right now. What is not good for the climate is the lack of appreciation of how far we are and the consequence of not hitting this 2 degree or 1.5 degree scenario. The world is not going to run out of oil and gas anytime soon. Total oil and gas resources are more than likely to double demand by 2050. Lower cost, lower carbon options are prioritized with disadvantaged resources being left in the ground. So the industry can relax? Well, not quite. Truly advantaged resources, that is oil and gas with a resilience to low price and emissions are not as plentiful as they may seem. If we assume demand remains at levels set by the targets of the Paris Agreement, these advantaged resources will only be enough to satisfy half. So what needs to be done? Upstream companies must act now, but where do they start? On the podcast today, we're going to look at the options. Exploration of new fields, decarbonization of existing assets, and investment in low-carbon alternatives are all on the table. Joining me to discuss the future of oil and gas supply is Andrew Latham. Andrew is Vice President of Energy Research at Wood Mackenzie. It's a great pleasure to join you again, Liz. Also joining us today is Dr. Valentina Kretschmar, Energy Transition Director at Capricorn Energy. Hi, Liz. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Valentina joined Capricorn after almost two decades with Wood Mackenzie, where she served as Vice President of Corporate Research. Valentina now leads Capricorn's sustainable strategy, aimed at delivering the company's net zero targets by 2040. Valentina, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. Before we dive into it, anything that viewers should know ahead of time? Liz, I would just like to make clear that while I work for Capricorn Energy, uh, the views and opinions I'm going to share today with you are personal and do not necessarily represent the views of my company. So let's start by looking at the current state of the global oil and gas supply. The world isn't going to run out anytime soon. Just how much do we have? Well, you're absolutely right, Liz. We're not going to run out. I mean, you know, if we just start with the oil, we have you know, something like 2,000 billion barrels of oil resources that we know about. A little bit of that is still at the expiration stage, but, you know, most of it is producing fields or, or fields that we've discovered and appraised. So that, you know, that's a big number, 2 trillion barrels. If production was to stay at today's levels, which, of course, lots of us hope it, that it won't, um, that would last us maybe 70 years or so. And it's a pretty similar story on the gas side as well. You know, we have more than one and a half trillion barrels oil equivalent of gas. And again, that will last us many, many decades, um, far beyond what most people expect is going to happen in, in terms of demand. So an awful lot of this resource is going nowhere. It's staying in the ground. Andy, uh, I have to say, I thought that the figures were absolutely staggering. But just imagine a climate activist looking at these figures, what would be the immediate an immediate response? In my view, the immediate response would be, why on earth would we want to explore for more oil and gas? Why don't we just tap into already discovered resources? Especially when the ask is to invest into a highly risky climate damaging and of course, extremely capex intensive activity which has not really been that great in delivering superior returns to shareholders over the last few decades. So 
these are the questions I think that policymakers, investors and, and society will want to have answered. Well, Valentina, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think a, uh, well, I say a climate a- activist, but actually I would include myself, will look at these sort of volumes of reserves and think, crikey, I really hope the world is not going to burn that volume of oil and gas because, you know, the climate consequences, I, I, I mean, we don't know the exact um, impact that would have on climate, but we know it's not going to be good, right? So we know we have a problem. So with this in mind, why do we forecast an issue with supply? Lots of the industry, um, I'm very pleased to see, is is setting targets around the quality of the oil and gas they, they supply. Um, and those targets, you know, historically, they would have essentially economic targets. You know, they would say, we got to have the lowest cost of supply. If we have the lowest cost of supply, we're going to win in this game. But increasingly, they're saying we've got to have the lowest emissions associated with our supply as well. Now, they can't really control what their customers do, but they can sure control the emissions associated, the scope one, two emissions, to use a technical term, associated with their, their supply. And so they're setting targets around that. And, and my observation is these targets are great um, and they're getting more and more stringent. But when I look at the available opportunities out there, it, it seems obvious that most people are going to miss these targets. There just is not enough good stuff for everybody to make progress on their emissions targets. If quality is the key issue here, what can be done to increase the supply of these advantaged resources, as you call them in the report? Well, yeah. So we talk about advantage really on just two axes. You know, it's the cost axes or so the economics. And it's the carbon axes or the emissions intensity, um, and you know there's a whole. We, we could probably talk for a couple of hours or more on what you <laughs> might do, and I, I, I'm hoping Valentina's going to wade in on a lot of these options as well. But you know, broadly, if we're right and there is this looming shortage of quality, then you've either got to find new options, and you know we can talk about exploration as one of those, or you've got to improve what you've already got. Or, and of course, the really fun one here is you've got to do something to reduce demand overall and say, well, we're going to use less of this stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically those three things. So I want to unpack this whole demand concept a little bit more. How does demand look under the AET minus 1.5 scenario? The, the one thing that really gets me is this confusion between scenarios and forecasts. Because I think people are not seeing the difference between the demand scenario and demand forecast. And I think the best example that I've seen recently recently is the Scottish Energy Strategy and Just Transition Plan, uh, which states in its plan that in 2021, the International Energy Agency, the IEA, advised that no new oil and gas fields beyond those already approved for development as of 2021 should proceed if the global climate goal of net zero emissions by 2050 is to be met. And therefore, the Scottish government is going to recommend no new exploration uh, in the North Sea, or actually they they think that should be the recommendation. Now, this is a scenario. This is IA's net zero scenario. It's not their forecast. IA's base case actually says that 60% of total energy demand will still be fossil fuels in 2050. So that's you know, their forecast based on the existing policies and everything that is visible. 
And it also says, actually, their base case also says that we are really not on a net zero pathway. Uh, we are going to miss it. We are not going to hit it. And, and, and this kind of mix uh, or lack of understanding, a lack of differentiation between scenarios and forecasts, I think is, is very dangerous because it actually fails to account for the security of supply that is needed to ensure orderly transition. I think in contrast, countries like Norway, for example, and in my view, um, have got this balance right and, and they're supporting accelerated energy transition. They're investing in renewables. They're very strict on carbon pricing, but they're also uh, supporting decarbonized oil and gas. So your question, what does demand look in, uh, in 1.5 degree scenario? Well, it doesn't look very good at all. I mean, we are going to have a 60, over 60% drop uh, going from 90 million barrels per day to just uh, around 30 million barrels per day. Sorry, Valentin, I'm, I'm going to jump in there and say, actually, I think it looks very good from a climate perspective, but I think also very, <laughs> un very unlikely. And I, I agree. I mean, you know, we are awash with um, forecasts and, and scenarios. And if you put them all on the same chart, what you see is that most of the sort of credible um, forecasters, and if I may be so bold, I'll include Wood Mac in that, um, our forecasts all look quite similar. You know, we're looking at similar data and we, we, we come up with similar forecasts. When you get into the realm of scenarios, there is a wide spectrum of scenarios, you know, often very much lower in terms of the demand that they foresee, often rooted in a particular climate outcome, but then getting to that outcome through radically different, you know, adoption of different technologies that have different implications for different bits of the energy mix. Um, and so I, I agree, it's, it's, it's super important to understand what is a forecast, what you think is actually going to happen, um, versus what is a scenario, which is effectively often nothing more than an illustration of how far away from that scenario we actually are. But, you know, you say, Andy, it's good for the climate. And ideally, if I thought that we could achieve this, and in some parts of the world, I believe that we will be able to achieve net zero. You know, but globally, I don't think it, it, this is going to happen. But, you know, what is not good for the climate is the lack of appreciation of how far we are and the consequence of not hitting this two degree or 1.5 degree scenario. Because if we are not hitting this 1.5 degree scenario, that means that we have to invest in adaptation and we are not investing in adaptation. So we are just repeating religiously that we are going to hit this net zero uh, and actually, we are failing to act on our inability to do it, to do this. I, I totally agree. And, and I think that, you know, the, the sort of discussion about expiration bans in the UK, to pick one example that's close to home as we sit here in Scotland, um, is completely unhelpful. It's a distraction from something that might actually help fix, fix the problem. You know, if Scotland does or does not develop a particular oil field, that does absolutely nothing for oil demand. Um, you know, that oil will either be produced from that field in Scotland or it will come from somewhere else. It's total greenwashing and absolutely no CO2, no carbon dioxide comes out of the atmosphere. And yet, um, so much of the, the political debate and, and, and sort of public interest in the topic is centered in these irrelevant questions. It, it's, it's a real shame. 
that's that's a great point. And I think one of the pieces that that really stands out is if we're going to meet demand, we have to look beyond the proven supplies. We're going to have to develop new fields. What are some of the issues with developing new fields? Let's start with some of the positives, actually. So, so new fields, rule of thumb, stick my finger in the air here. Why do I like? I, I, I'm a big fan of new fields, right? Um, for any given um, demand outlook, if you can have lots of shiny new fields in there, that's generally good. And one of the main reasons I like them is because, you know, on average, they have half the emissions intensity of existing supply, right? So that's good, okay? If, if, you're, if you start from the standpoint that having a few new fields in the mix doesn't change demand, so you either keep going with your old fields or you bring in some shiny new ones, um, nothing changes on demand. So there's no, there's no scope three emissions consequence of bringing in new fields. All you're going to do is bring your scope one, two emissions, your, your production emissions down. Um, so that's good. And I, and I think that's why you, know, you, can, you can make an argument with your hand on your heart as a, as a positive climate outcome saying, I want to develop new fields. And, and you know, an exploration is kind of one good way to do that. The issues um, are that they're not always very quick to develop, particularly if you haven't even found them yet. So you're getting into that uncertainty of you know, what is demand going to be 2035, 2040 if it's gas? Um, am I investing to meet demand that might not be there or am I investing um, needing prices that could be anywhere that far in the future? You, know, you, you could be running up against all sorts of policy changes or tax changes or, or, or barriers to you getting a return on your investment that you're just not aware of at the moment. I think I, I agree with you, Andy, on this. I think for as far as I can see, the development of new fields is an opportunity to really gold plate all the decarbonization projects. Uh, I know very well how difficult it is sometimes to retrofit and to uh, improve uh, and to implement the decarbonization projects in mature fields. So developing new fields, uh, of course, is, uh, is, is, a, is a great opportunity to start from scratch, as, and as you say, to deliver a, a very much sort of a low carbon project. But again, as, as you state very clearly, uh, we are uh, fighting against many pressures and head, headwinds uh, when it comes to you know, the, the actual demand for this product, how long we are going to need this. So since 2014, pretty much since the oil price crash in 2014, companies have uh, very much stuck to their mantra of capital discipline, return to shareholders, and very much worried about what the energy transition is going to bring uh, uh, towards them. So, you know, sanctioning big oil and gas projects, uh, yeah, it, it's still a very, very... Uh, difficult decision for many companies. So we've talked a little bit about these advantaged resources. Now, I have a mental model in my head and maybe on paper here that has cost as the y-axis and carbon as the x-axis. Where do these fall? I'm imagining lower carbon. Are they lower cost? Are they all over the place for cost? Well, Liz, you want them to be both. So you're right. In fact, we did put a, a chart along the lines you just described there into the report, and we showed all the different undeveloped oil and gas fields around the world and where they plotted. And, and you can think of four quadrants, right? You know, you want to be low cost and low carbon, and about a quarter of the, of the resources are sitting very nicely in that quadrant. The other end, you've got high cost, high carbon stuff, which looks pretty doomed, frankly. That's, that is going to stay in the ground. Then you've got high cost, low carbon barrels, 
I don't think the industry is going to spend much time with those either, because if, if you invest in them to try and try and um, improve them, you're probably just going to make that cost issue worse. The interesting ones are the ones that are low cost, but high carbon. And Valentina talked about opportunities to find ways to reduce that carbon, uh, to reduce those emissions. You know, and that can be things like, um, well, all kinds of things. Electrifying facilities is, is very often number one on the list, but methane abatement emissions, you know, getting, stopping methane leaks can be pretty good. And there's a whole spectrum of other technologies you, you can deploy. Now, they cost money, but if it's not too much, then you might move those assets down into that, that low-cost, low-carbon quadrant that you would say are highly advantaged and should be the next projects to move forward. I would be a, a really a great fan of, of you know, really converting disadvantaged resources into advantaged resources. I mean, I think your report states that something like 72% of resources are not advantaged. What kind of innovation, what can we do to shift them into the advantaged, advantaged category? Well, well, we're clearly fans of the same thing. I mean, I, I, I think that this theme is going to be a key investment theme for the industry in the years ahead and, and a growing theme because, you know, we don't have enough advantaged barrels. We do have loads of barrels. Can we fix the disadvantaged ones? It's sort of obvious. I think, I mean, I mentioned a moment ago that having plentiful clean electricity helps. And of course, we're seeing large parts of the world rolling out solar and, and wind and you know maybe nuclear and maybe other low carbon um, electricity availability that potentially opens up new places to being electrified where you know previously you were burning diesel to power your facilities or, or whatever it was you're doing. So I think there's going to be a lot of geographies where this works better in future than it does right now, really because of those renewables popping up everywhere. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I truly think uh, that we should focus a lot more on decarbonization of existing assets. And um, I think there's so much we can do to decarbonize existing oil and gas production uh, and existing resource. Uh, obviously, the company that I work for, Capricorn Energy, we have assets in Egypt and we have implemented uh, a lot of initiatives uh, that actually are helping us to, to get there, to reach this net zero target by, by 2040. However, it's not easy. And I think uh, what we need to do and, and what we need to engage, uh, kind of the kind of engagement that we have to have with governments and, and um, ministries, and I think your colleague, Graham Kellis wrote about this. We really have to rewire uh, existing uh, fiscal systems around the globe uh, to make sure that decarbonization initiatives are first made compulsory. So companies, they have to decarbonize their existing oil and gas production. Um, and they also cost recoverable because at the moment, there are only a couple of jurisdictions around the world um, on the develop on developing country side, at least, uh, that actually enable cost recovery within existing uh, PSC or JV, or JV fiscal systems. So this is something that we need to do. There's a lot, a lot of work to be done uh, on, on engagement. Uh, absolutely. And I'm very glad you referenced Graham's work there. I mean, I think the industry at the moment is very much self-regulating. You know, it, it, is, it is setting itself targets. It's saying, I want, we, we want our emissions intensity to be below you know, different companies have different targets, but let's say below 20 kilos per barrel going forward. Um, and 
are probably justifying that as, well, firstly, just the right thing to do. Um, and, and maybe secondly, in anticipation that regulation will catch up with what they're already doing themselves, which is kind of the wrong way around, really. The regulation should be there driving driving this investment and driving the companies to to minimize their emissions. But, you know, let's let's talk about scope three, because, you know, you, you mentioned net zero there, Valentina, and, and you know, net is a big word in that phrase. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks in the in the upstream industry that see CCS, carbon capture and storage, as being the big technology that is going to get us to a net zero to offset all of those scope three emissions that are, that are coming with oil and gas. And and we would we would agree, you know, we, we we think that that's an industry that is absolutely in its infancy right now. You know, it's it's just a few tens of million tons capacity per year. But it's going to get up to multi-gigaton scale within the sort of next two to three decades, if if we're going to get anywhere near those net zero goals. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned scope three. Uh, my question would be, how long is this podcast? <laughs> we can talk for a very long time about scope three. Uh, yeah, scope three is the elephant in the room. Um, at, at the moment, oil and gas companies are not quite pressed by the regulators to actually account for scope three emissions to set targets against scope three. So the vast majority of oil and gas companies have set targets against scope one and two emissions. The reason for that is that scope three emissions are about demand. It's the customer's side. It's uh, the behavioral change uh, that that is needed to, to tackle scope three. But the way that things are evolving, um, it is uh, it is really going down the the route of the regulators pushing uh, fossil fuel producers to actually account for the scope three emissions as well. We we still, as I say, it's not mandatory. Uh, it's uh, there's still no rule that to actually press companies to do this, uh, but it's it's likely evolving in this direction. I mean, for me, the, the challenge here is finding a way for that kind of um, regulation to apply equally to all of the actors in the industry. And of course, the danger is that you have some of the IOCs being real leaders on the scope three front, but then others, let's say for argument's sake, some of the NOCs choosing not to uh, attempt uh, anything on the scope three side. And of course, you end up with just as much supply meeting whatever demand there is, but coming from from a different group of companies. So we've talked a little bit about how investment and exploration is down. I think in the report, it said it was down 70%. And public attitudes towards the harvesting of advanced resources are becoming overwhelmingly negative. What role does the public's perception have in this? Well, I think it doesn't help. And I I think, um, you know, in a... In a perfect world, everyone would have a really good understanding of these issues that we've been talking about. They'd all be listening to this podcast and and a few light bulbs would be going on and they'd be saying, you know what, perhaps exploration does have a positive role to play. But of course, that isn't going to happen. And it's it's very easy for anybody to portray um, exploration as extending the era of hydrocarbons, um, even if that's not necessarily true. So... Anybody that wants to invest in in exploration knows that they are going to have to overcome this kind of narrative and that they're going to have a a few more barriers to to what they want to achieve than perhaps they used to in the past. 
Um, and I think what that means is that you know, some companies have just given up. They've, they've, they've kind of left, left exploration to, to those that want to stay. And those that are staying are being much more careful about the projects they invest in because you know, it's, it's harder work than it used to be. So you better get a better return than you used to. And we're seeing that, you know, if you if you look in um, Woodmax analysis of the exploration sector right now, the economics are are better than they've been for ages, and and it's because of this uh, smaller industry being much more choosy about the, the the wells it drills and the prospects it drills. It's it, it's only drilling, in the main, where it knows it can it can develop a success. You know, if you find something, you can use it. Whereas ten years ago, people were saying, oh. You know, build it and they will come. Let's just drill anything, find some resource. Doesn't matter if it's in the Arctic. Um, you know, someone will work out what to do with it. That's that's those days are over. Yeah, I think really when I think about the industry and the challenges it faces um, right now, I, I would say that it is the villainization and vilification of the industry uh, that are currently really its its biggest problems and. Uh, this comes from policymakers. It comes from the media, which also influences, you know, the wider uh, public. And to my mind, policymaking is is driven by climate justice and not necessarily energy literacy. Uh, and sometimes I, I honestly feel as if I'm surrounded by people suffering from the Dunning-Kruger syndrome, uh, you know, which means that like the less you know, the more confident you are about the issue. <laughs> because, uh, and it's, it's, uh, there's no way kind of breaking through this wall, I feel. Um, and, but I actually think ultimately it's, it's very dangerous uh, that we are in this kind of position. It's dangerous because it will ultimately lead to a disorderly transition. And it will delay progress, um, and of course, uh, it will delay progress on on the uh, you know for the energy transition, and of course, it will have a very detrimental impact uh, for our planet. Valentina, I wasn't familiar with the name of the syndrome, but I absolutely recognise the symptoms of it. Um, yeah, I mean, to, I mean, to, to actually to sort of build on the problem, I mean, what we're seeing really for the same reasons is um, lots of young people shying away from careers in the energy industry, or certainly choosing not, for example, to study geosciences as at, at university. We're seeing geoscience departments closing down in, in, in many places. Um, and, and yet we know that we're going to need geoscientists and, and other, other disciplines as well, but geoscientists um, in order to have a smooth uh, energy transition. You know, that geoscientists don't just find oil and gas, they, they play a role in, you know, anything in the subsurface, they play a role in um, developing some of the critical minerals and metals that we're going to need if we're going to have this much bigger electrification and yeah, renewables industry that's going to step in into the shoes of the oil and gas industry that we have today. So um, that's an issue. And it, it's driven by, in part, by misconceptions about what these roles are. Yeah, I completely agree. Actually, just recently, uh, I presented at a recruitment event where there were quite few young people who were still interested in working, uh, you know, in the oil and gas industry, but they were just so terrified of actually joining such a what looks like a toxic space. 
uh, right now. You know, and, and there was also, you know, when you, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, there are so many different scenarios, forecasts, you know, trying to really unpick what is really happening and, and decide whether there's future in this industry is very difficult uh, for, for young people. So my thoughts, I share the kind of same views that I have shared here. Obviously, you know, th- there is still, we still have at least few decades uh, you know, we will need oil and gas and we will need this orderly transition uh, to take place over the next few decades. But only if you have steel, can you actually join inside? Can you join the oil and gas industry? Because you're going to be getting it from all sides. You know, so you have to be a super strong person uh, to, to resist all the pressures. Well, well, I, I mean, you're, you're right, of course. But of course, this, this issue has been with us for a little while now. And I'm, I'm seeing... Um, certainly a lot of the majors now starting to um, hybridize roles so that so that people are working in oil and gas are you know they're, they're in a subsurface role that role may span hydrogen storage it may span CCS it may span geothermal um, you know you can tell your friends you're working in clean energy or energy in a broader sense knowing that you know as the transition unfolds you, you know the the percentage of your time you spend on one thing versus another will change. And I think that's a reasonable strategy. I think that that deals with the optics of the problem. Uh, it does and it doesn't. It make it may make you feel better uh, about doing your job. And, and of course, I, I'm energy transition director, so I'm very proud what we have done in my company in terms of the commitment to to net zero and all the initiatives, the carbonization initiatives, that doesn't really help with the optics outside. There are still many companies that simply will not work with us simply because we are an oil and gas company. And, you know, when when you look at the um, ESG rating agencies, oil and gas industry is grouped together with some of the you know, most immoral industries out there. I'm not going to name them. <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't even like to, 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 you know, think that we are thought of uh, in, in the same, you know, along, the, along the same terms as, you know, those industries. Yeah. I mean, Valentina, I, I, my, my thought goes back to, I mean, your, your thinking is, is way ahead of mine on this. I remember several years ago being aghast when you told me that gas was also starting to be seen as bad, I just thought, okay, oil is bad, but at least gas is okay. And, and he said, no, no, it's still a fossil fuel, Andy. It's going to be it's going to be lumped together. And, and, and I guess so. It's so it's proven. I think there's there's a bit of a danger when we think you know, more broadly about about the transition that we get we have this this pursuit of the perfect, and, and we and we get in the way of the good. You know, to use that 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 phrase. You know, as as we saw with the interruptions to gas supply into Europe a year ago, or beginning a year ago. Um, one of the consequences of that, of course, was we, we saw more demand for coal. And, you know, and if you think, you know, if, if you look at forecasts, not scenarios, for the next 10 years or so, what is one of the biggest um, causes of uh, decarbonisation? Well, it's coal being displaced by gas. Now, of course, you'd rather that coal was displaced by um, low carbon energy, but the, in the real world, it's, it's very often gas that's, that's taking its place, and that's not perfect, but it's a lot better. Oh well, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I've heard 
so many people from uh, developing countries, representatives of governments, representatives of, of their national companies, um, really stating very clearly that the, the Western model of the energy transition is not going to be followed uh, by them and they should not be expected to follow uh, this this kind of model. Um, but I just want to say, uh, so just people don't think, oh, you, look, there's an, oil, uh, there's an oil and gas person, you know, crying about... <laughs> how they're treated as uh, so a Crimea river. No, I just want to say that actually there is a lot of responsibility on the oil and gas industry to actually do things right. And over the last seven, eight years, uh, you know, we started doing this together, Andy, in, in Woodmac back in 2015. I have seen a huge shift um, in how oil and gas companies, the, the oil and gas industry has responded to the energy transition pressures. Uh, and there are almost no companies now that have not uh, actually set their targets. Are they greenwashing? Are they not greenwashing? Um, I think uh, a lot of them are doing uh, a lot of good things. They're doing right things. They're investing in decarbonization. They're investing in clean technologies. And we need to start differentiating those companies that are doing good things from those companies that are potentially greenwashing. Uh, we don't. I don't think we have the best frameworks right now to be able to uh, figure out who is doing what, but it will come and they will be, the good companies will, I think, will be rewarded for their efforts. Yeah, you know, from, from my perspective, I mean, again, agree wholeheartedly what you just said there, Valentino. And I think from my perspective, you know, sometimes these things are really not that complicated. You know, you can look at what companies are doing and you can say, are they investing? To, is, is that an investment that's designed to reduce demand? If it is, I'm super interested. You know, anyone that's investing to reduce demand, replace oil and gas with, with another technology, that's great. You know, sometimes the economics aren't so wonderful, but you know what? If it's reducing demand, I'm interested. If it is reducing the emissions intensity of that supply, I'm interested. Um, most other things, and a lot of other things get a lot of airtime, I'm not so interested. It's, it's kind of in the greenwashing bucket. You know, if I'm, if I'm selling my assets to somebody else who's just going to carry on producing them exactly as I did, I really, I really don't care. There's, there's no climate benefit in that, and we, we, and we should call it out for what it is. So that, I think, is actually a perfect place to stop. Thank you both so much for this very, very vivid conversation. Andrew, where can listeners learn more about the work that you and your team are doing at Wood Mackenzie? Well, thanks, Liz. Um, yes, the Horizons report that we've been talking about and so much more is available to our listeners on woodmac.com. Thank you. Valentina, thank you so much for your insights here. It was great having a mini Woodmac reunion too. Thank you, Liz. It's, uh, it's, it's been a great pleasure as always. The challenge for the oil and gas sector of undersupply presents companies with two options fight or flight. Companies who double down on upstream will need to diversify their strategy, looking for affordable supply with low emissions and increasing their support for specialized exploration. The companies who flee will retreat from the sector as investment falls. Security of supply may suffer as a result. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and this is Horizons. Thank you to Andrew and Valentina for joining us. And for more information, as always, head to woodmac.com slash horizons. See you next time.